Hello. This is required viewing. I can't make you love me if I don't. <laughs> Happy Valentine's Day. Bonnie Raitt won a Grammy. I was just. And all the kids on TikTok don't know who Bonnie Raitt is. Let's give them something to talk about. Yeah. She is giving them something to talk about. Her fucking 40 year career. It's really depressing to me. Bonnie Raitt sang at Woodstock, man. She What's was Woodstock. <laughs> I, let's not do that. I don't want to do that. <laughs> I don't want to do that. That's really upsetting. Why? Because today's youth has no res- no respect, no respect no at culture. all. Literally, the point of this podcast. Nobody knows who jo- John Belushi is, or fucking Gilda Radner, or Bonnie Janice Raitt, Joplin. or Janie Janie Jimpler. <laughs> that one's my favorite. <laughs> I love that fucking bit in Thirty Rock. <laughs> Jamie Jarp Jarp. Do you remember that bit? Jamie Jimp Jarp. <laughs> yeah, they're like, we didn't get the rights. To- to her story, <laughs> Jamie, Jim, Jim, Jorb. Jim Jorb. Oh. Take another little piece of my food now, baby. Oh my god, Jenna's my favorite. Man, I'm so excited that Amy Poehler and Tina Fey are going on tour, but I'm really sad that I they're was not coming why out here. Amy Poehler got an Instagram all of a sudden, probably to help pump. Oh, help pump the algorithm, pump it up. <laughs> Jennifer Coolidge got got a TikTok. She did. And she's doing a ton of fucking commercials. God bless Jennifer Coolidge. She is having her awakening, which I think is really fascinating. There's so many people having awakenings and renaissances or renaissances. When you like think about like her and her career, like at least physicality, she's not at her peak anymore, which is fine by me. I don't give a shit. I love Jennifer Coolidge. She's looked about the but same, though. Like, nah, she, did you see her in that fucking mermaid dress that she wore? She's got a big old belly. And if you see White Lotus, she's got a big old, she's yeah. very full. And that's fine by me. I yeah. love a full figure Jennifer Coolidge. I'm into it. But just like, this is the time when I know that she probably... Because most women are insecure about themselves. Probably at a time where she might be some of the most insecure about herself. She's having this big grand moment in the sun. Isn't that? Yeah. But that's just like bringing forth. Because Brendan, you mentioned Brendan Fraser a second ago. Brendan Fraser's been talking about how fat fat people don't get no love. Dude, he used to run around in a fucking loincloth all greased up all the time. You and I know. I do not know. (sighs) I wore the VHS out. Tell me about it. Out. Look at that long, curly, wavy hair. Mm. All greased up Canadian and shit. Canadian dam. That's all I have to say. Sheesh. Speaking of dam. Oh, today is a dam. Well, welcome back to the Required Viewing Podcast. I'm Aaron. I'm Chloe. And this week, we are smack dab in the heart of Golden Age Hollywood and for the next few episodes, actually. And we're continuing our we're look. We're in that sweet spot I where our movies are no longer, well, not quite. Some movies are an hour and a half. And some movies some are, are not. not. <laughs> <laughs> but they're all talking, and there's not as much reading. That's nice. For sure. <laughs> and there's s- slightly less blatant racism. But that's what we're talking about. That's, slightly yes. less. <laughs> it's, it's, 
We're, We're changing l- the season title from Pastiga Cast to slightly less <laughs> race, racial cast, racist casting. Uh, we're continuing, obviously, our look on race in Hollywood with the stunningly handsome John Gavin. I mean, John, damn, man. Ugh, get, get the fans out, ladies. You will get full. It was funny because you see his IMDb photo does not do him justice. No. Because that man is fine and tall. He's a gorgeous man. He is beautiful. It was a nice week of movies to look at this man. And he was Happily. shirtless in like a lot of it. Most of it. Not the first movie, but the second and the, the first one. Because he like tiny bit. changes and stuff. Yeah. Oh, I guess there is that. Yeah, we'll get to it. But yeah, he is kind of, but not as much as in the second and the yeah. He has a really good moment in the sun in the third movie. Anyway, we're going to get there. We're going to get there. This dude was so fucking interesting. He had one hell of a career from acting to politics. I can't wait to dive in. Politics? Okay. Yeah, I mean, dude. if he's get giving like Kennedy vibes. I'd... Strap the fuck in, dude. Oh, you're <laughs> literally the snail trail. will continue. You have no idea. I don't think I've seen that point. Okay, until I say he's a Republican and then it'll dry up. I was wondering if he was a Republican. Because usually if you say actor, then they usually go Republican, Republican. politics. Yeah, yep, 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 yep. But It we'll always get there. gets disappointment somewhere. So our movies this week. Our movies. Movies. <laughs> a time to love, a time to die. From what year, Chloe? 1958. Fuck yeah. Spartacus. From 1960. And Psycho. From also 1960. He was real busy. We're going to talk about those couple of years. You were right. He was busy making my dreams come true. Oh my God. <laughs> Make up my dreams come true. <laughs> you know, I mean, he was making something come true. He made his dreams come true. He was making something come. How about that? That too, (laughs) man. That too. Okay. So you ready to just dive in? You got any notes at the top? Any news? Nothing? I mean, no. No? Okay. Well, let's do it. John Gavin. Just keep Thanks for listening, I guess. Yeah. And keep listening. Keep listening. Yeah. Because <laughs> there's do. more of this episode. This is a long episode. The end. This is going to be a chunky one. The next couple are, are going to be pretty thick, so get ready. So John Gavin was born in Los Angeles under the name Juan Vincent Albasa the second. His father is Juan Vincent the first, obviously. Mm-hmm. And he was of Chilean descent, and his mother, Delilah Diana Pueblos, was a Mexican-born aristocrat. When John was two, his parents divorced, and his mother married Harold Ray Glenner, who adopted Juan and changed his name to John Anthony. Okay. I know. I was like, I'm taking you, child. Your name is now Kunta. It's no longer Kunta Kinder. <laughs> Like, you know, Toby. That was the opposite of the problem. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. Your name is now John Anthony. Your, your name is John Juan. Your name Juan. My name is Juan. <laughs> your name is John. <laughs> After attending a Roman Catholic school, St. John's Military Academy in L.A., he uh, then went on to preparatory school and earned a Bachelor of Fine Arts in Economics. He and didn't see he was like a third or fourth generation, like, Angelian or whatever they called it. Like he was, his family had been in Los Angeles for, for a minute, a while. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So his degree was in economics and Latin American affairs from Stanford University, where he did senior honors work in Latin America, economic history, and was a member of the Chi Psi fraternity and Navy ROTC. 
Wow. Yeah. Get ready. That's a lot. He was busy. After graduation, during the Korean War, Gavin was commissioned in the U.S. Navy, serving abroad the USS Princeton off Korea, where he served as an air intelligence officer from 1951 until the end of the war in 1953. Due to Gavin's fluency in both Spanish and Portuguese... He dude. was a, I know. <laughs> dude. <laughs> I, I gotta add some spice. You know I like to add the spice. No, it was just like, he's multilingual. <laughs> he's fucking educated top of the dude, line. Dude, I told you you were literally gonna fucking slide off your chair. <laughs> like, about this you. This is stupid. <laughs> and he's hot. He's yeah, like no a, less. He's, he's still like a fugly <laughs> nerd is what you're saying. Not only is he smart and multilingual, but he is also hot. <laughs> Which is our number one requirement at Required Viewing. <laughs> I don't know if you listened to the first few episodes. <laughs> so he was assigned as a flag lieutenant to Admiral Milton E. Miles until he completed his four-year tour of duty in 1955. He received an award for his work in the Honduras floods of 1954. I thought you were about to say Honduras. <laughs> <laughs> That's a porno I'm making. John Gavin in Honduras. <laughs> Following his naval service, I'm steaming ahead. This Dude. episode's going to be 10 hours long. Also, great pun. You're steaming ahead. I am. This is, Following his naval this service. This is a steamy episode. We got to get to it. <laughs> John Gavin offered himself as a technical advisor to family friend and film producer Brian Foy, who was making a movie about the Princeton, the USS Princeton oh, at okay. the time. Instead, Foy arranged a screen test for Gavin with Universal. <laughs> he like, was like, well, you could just do it. Bitch, you're beautiful. Let's do this. He's like, you, you know mean? it and you're pretty. So just you could just do it. Consultant my ass. Let's get on this yeah, screen. Consult this. Okay. <laughs> He initially refused the offer, but his father urged him to try it. The test was successful, and Gavin signed on with the studio. Quote, they offered me so much money I couldn't resist, end quote. <laughs> it's going to offer you. It's going to make you an offer you couldn't refuse. John Gavin, you beautiful man. I mean, consultant money, actor money, star money. Because yeah. I mean, real talk, girl, we would take that consultant money right now. Granted, fact, you know, what, any money we would could be great. Consult on some stuff, but not a lot of stuff. Um, actually, that was a good segue. So the whole point Universal tagged him is because they wanted to mold him as their own Rock Hudson. He was like slated to be the next mm -hmm, Rock Hudson. Mm -hmm. So he trained in Jesse Kimmel's talented workshop under the name John Gilmore. His first couple of credits are under that name as well. <laughs> it's a real day. I know. His big break was... Weren't you John Gavin? No, I'm John Gilmore. Gilmore. Oh, okay. Gilmore. Gilmore. Different guy. Sorry, my I bad. Because Gavin wasn't white enough. Gilmore's or Gilmore fuck. Now you got me saying it's it. It's the Gilmore Goyles. <laughs> Gavin's big break was in A Time to Love, A Time to Die as the lead, directed by Douglas Sirk. And this was based on the novel by Heinrich Remold. Heinhold? I mean, that Heinrich, that tells me all I need to know about who I <laughs> who, who wrote, wrote the this. Book. And if you when you watch the movie, then you're like, oh, this makes sense now. He's a Filipino guy. <laughs> 
His casting drew comparisons with the casting of the similarly inexperienced Lou Ayers in the Universal film All Quiet on the Western Front in 1931. Cirque cast Gavin for the young actor's inexperienced, fresh looks and earnest manner. The film was not as successful when it was released, although Gavin received praise for his performance. Before A Time to Love, A Time to Die had been released, Gavin was already cast by Cirque in a supporting role with Lana Turner in the remake of Imitation of Life in mm. 1959. Was he having troubles too with his Guatemalanness? I mean, his Chileanness? He played Steve since we just watched that movie. Yeah. Steven. Okay. Steven! Unlike A Time to Love, A Time to Die, Imitation of Life was a box office smash. He really <laughs> fucking, he nailed that one home. It was great. It's really, it was unlike Eddie Murphy's Norbit experience. <laughs> like, if he would have had Norbit come out first and then Dreamgirls, he would have had that Oscar that year. But he fucked up. He so now it. we got like John Gavin knew what was up. We're going to put out the shitty movie first. They're going to forget about it because I'm going to come in with this great movie. No, No, I know. And this was like a war epic. So they probably were really right trying to place. shoot for the stars. <laughs> right place, I, right time. I do understand why this didn't go over well. And we're going to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was praised as the most promising newcomer for his performance in the film by the motion picture exhibitor. Gavard appeared as Julius Caesar in Universal's epic Spartacus in 1960, directed by Stanley Kubrick. He was cast as Sam Loomis in the thriller Psycho in 1960. So essentially we did his first three movies, mm-hmm. but these movies happen to be great and epic. They're and all I wanted to watch them. Required viewing. Exactly. So uh, the sixties was, was a really special time for film. And I really, oh, yeah. In, Enjoy the 60s. Yeah, I think that... Uh, Technicolor. I feel like it was 60s, 70s, and 80s are probably... And 90s are like our... Old stuff. <laughs> God job. <laughs> Old stuff. Gavin later claimed that he was, quote, terribly disturbed by the sex and violence in Psycho, saying, quote, I think Hitch really got frosted with me, end quote. Both films were successful. The sex and violence, there's barely any sex. Dude, we're going to talk about the six, 1960 was a hell of a lot different. Mm-hmm. We're going to get there when we get down to Psycho. Um, <laughs> Again, we're going from like Murray Bartlett licking an asshole <laughs> virtually <laughs> or licking a dental dam on top of someone. Well, what happened in the 70s was pornos. It was behind mm-hmm. the green door. Right. That's what happened. That's mm-hmm. why John Waters was allowed to do what he was allowed to do. Barely. He was like, ah, okay. Yeah. Um, so he... Uh, Barely. Again, he, he had a few really big years in 1960 and 1961, being Universal's leading man. Mm-hmm. And honestly, he was really prolific throughout all the way to the 70s, essentially, mm-hmm. doing both TV and film. He kind of segued out of film to do TV. I literally had to abbreviate his bio because this man has done so much fucking shit. I do encourage you, please go look him up. Mm-hmm. It is massive. It was It was hard to kind of pick out all the good stuff because there was too many good stuffs. <laughs> so yeah. he was on the board. Uh, besides acting, he was on the board of SAG from 1971 to 1973. And he, fun story, signed on the for the role of James Bond in Diamonds Are Forever in 1971 after George Linsby left the role. However. George Lazenby? What did I say? Linsby. Lindsby. 
Lazenby is what I meant to say. Well, so that's interesting because that's the famous Bond who only did one film. Correct. They offered him like millions of dollars to do another and he said no. And he's the only Australian Bond as well. Mm -hmm. Um, But the problem, he had signed on for it. Oh, wow. He had signed the papers, but... David Picker, the head of United Artists, who was producing it, wanted the box office assurance of Sean Connery, whose name was already on the table. Mm. Gavin's contract was honored despite losing the role to Connery. According to Roger Moore's Bond diary, Gavin was slated to play Bond and Live and Let Live in 1973, but Harry Saltzman insisted on a British actor for the role, and Moore was given the part. In June 1986, following his work... As an ambassador to Mexico, because at some because point... Because of Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan, yeah. yeah. Acted an actor. He became vice president of Atlantic Richfield in federal and international relations. In 1987, he resigned to become president of Universa Satellite Communications. So, city. Let me try that again. He became president of Univisa Satellite Communications, a subsidiary of Univisa, the Spanish la- the Spanish language broadcasting empire. Okay. So he has, is living I life. No, so many lives. I love people who live multiple lives. Don't They're just like, go do okay, one thing. you're not going to make Don't me do, bond. Do, I'm going to go do this now. <laughs> Uh, so he was also president of Gamma Holdings, a global capital and consulting company from which he founded in 1968. He became chairman of Gamma Services International in January of 1990. He served on so many boards, man. I did not want to list them all. There was like 30 boards. This dude was like on the board of so many things. On the board of everything? Everything. Uh, up and Essentially up until basically almost his death. Well, not really. He just had a nice long retirement. Um, in 2001, he gave up his seat on all the boards. <laughs> on all of them. He just said, I want to go hang out by myself. He died of complications from pneumonia in a long battle with leukemia on February 9th, 2018 in his home in Beverly Hills, California. Mm. But like I said, that was an abbreviated, abbreviated, <laughs> an abbreviated biography. Mm-hmm. So... He was a fascinating fucker to yeah. fucking research. This was a lot of fun. He was almost Bond. Or basically he would was have been Bond. a really good James Bond. He would have been a fucking fantastic Bond. He would have been the as only American love, Bond, really. Um, fun story. I think Roger Moore is one of the worst Bonds. <laughs> Which is interesting because he was my dad's favorite. And I was like, I always like Sean Connery. Sean Connery. But then again, then we wouldn't have gotten Brosnan. Sean Connery. Yeah. We wouldn't have gotten Sean Connery if we didn't have... No, but I mean, he had a second opportunity and then they gave it to Roger Moore. So mm-hmm. they get, they pulled that rug out from him twice, which really mm-hmm. sucks. But I mean, then he went into politics and then he went into private, the private sector and had a great old life until he died. Retired, fat and happy. Yep. Happy John Gavin. Some people die poor and penniless. Not this John motherfucker. Crawford, like just, you know, there's that scene in... mommy dearest where she's just like sitting on a mattress on the ground like watching the awards just like hair and kind of rollers and now i kind of want to yeah that seems insane but i kind of want to pose a question yeah 
Now, <gasps> our two previous episodes have been females mm-hmm. who have struggled with mixed background. Now, we mm-hmm. have a man with a mixed background mm-hmm. who has had some struggles, but not as many, especially mm-hmm. not when we talk about who we're going to talk about next week. Right. Do you think it beca- it was because he was a man and had two, well, his step- stepdad was white and his mother was white presenting. Do mm-hmm. you think that aided him in his success in Hollywood? I think so. I think b- people were more accepting, I guess, to have... I don't know, but it does feel like he got pretty far. It didn't seem like he had to struggle as much. I don't want to say he didn't have to, but like... I mean, he had to play the the game, you know what I mean? I feel like anyone... He, from what I... Some things that I didn't exactly include was his struggle with being molded to look like Rock Hudson. He really didn't want to be... Rock Hudson, he wanted, and he didn't want to, be, to be John Brando. Gavin. He didn't want to be these other dudes that they were trying to like pit him up against. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like maybe his struggle was more just being a man than yeah. being a a man of of, of Latin descent. Yeah. yeah, I could see that because it's not. It's we talk about it a little bit more now, but it is definitely. Within the act, within and within the public eye spotlight, what it is to be a man and what it is to be a woman, we, we often look to actors and actresses and celebrities to like showcase what people should look like or whatever. So, and they, it's coming out more with TikTok trivia and all these trends on finding out like, did you know, and all these secrets, but. There was a lot of work that went into transforming humans to look like other human beings. Word, and the other thing is our detail. other human being, those human beings that they transformed or, or trying to be transformed into, those people had to go through similar transformations to be who they were. So it's um, Merle Oberon, perfect example, having her face scarred from all the makeup, mm-hmm. like from them trying really to like trying obviously to lighten her, her up. skin. Yeah. So from my research, I mean, he struggled. Don't get me wrong. John mm-hmm. Gavin did struggle. And that's why he went by John Gavin or mm-hmm. John Gilmore. He wasn't confidently wasn't going by Juan. Juan. Like, I just, I, the whole point to this season is to just shine a spotlight on how Hollywood really makes people change to mold into these little cookie cutter cutouts that mm-hmm. they want to try to put people in. So we feel insecure about ourselves. Correct. Yeah, so just to keep that at the back of your mind when you think, this motherfucker had a great life. Why are they talking about him? Because he did struggle for a long time, well, and he had to keep his life, a, he had to keep his true self a secret. His true self a secret, and then I think after trying and trying, I mean, he couldn't help but wonder, why. what are some of the other conversations in those big table rooms where, that they had where why he didn't get Bond when he was already signed on? You know what I mean? Like, there's all those conversations, offensive things that people say. And maybe he just got tired of it. And that's why he was fine with turning to politics. He was like, I'm still dealing with two-faced people. I just have to, like... I feel like that's why a lot of actors go to politics. But... Because they're already used to doing, well, doing that and acting and being in a big crowd of people. It's a different circus. It's a similar circus. Oh, it's a different circus, for sure. Still circus, nonetheless. Still a circus, yeah. A different circus. 
Are you ready to give us a time to love, a time to die? I'd say same tent, different circus. I would agree. I would agree. <laughs> it's a different ring in the circus. Agreed. Yes. <clears throat> so, a time to love, a time to die. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Even though we're <laughs> in Germany. You don't know who's telling the story. True, true. <laughs> As a German infantry unit retreats across Russia in the spring of 1944, Ernst Graeber, John Gavin, his conscience is revolted by the execution of captured civilians. Given his first furlough for over two years, he returns to find his family home bombed and his parents gone. What a shitty homecoming. Right? He was so excited. He looks like, so happy. See my mama. He's like, I've been at war for two years. I get three weeks Even off. Even the other people were like... Oh, dude, you haven't been home in like two years? Seriously? He should have spoken up more. <laughs> I mean, war be war, man. I know, right? War be crazy. They're just Not that I know, out personally. The field. They're like, oh, shit, you should go home. Oh, yeah, you should probably go home. So you don't, you know. Well, especially considering that right before he goes home, one of the other soldiers offs himself. Oh, for sure. Yeah. So they're like, maybe we should send this guy home. We shouldn't be keeping people here. Calling at the house of the family doctor for information, the daughter Elizabeth tells him her father is in a concentration camp because of his unwise because of an unwise remark. Allied bombing continues by day and by night. An old school friend who is now the local head of the Nazi party offers Ernst accommodation, food, drink, and women. But he prefers to stay with fellow soldiers billeted in the hospital and to get closer to Elizabeth. The two go on to one restaurant still open, which is destroyed that night by bombs. Each alone in the world, they agree to an immediate marriage, but Elizabeth's family home is flattened by bombs and they take refuge in a ruined church. Elizabeth gets a summon to Gestapo headquarters, which Ernst intercepts and attends as her husband. He has given her father's ashes, which he secretly buries in the churchyard. Visiting his former teacher, who helps Jews on the run, he is... Sorry can think of Jews on the run. I literally was thinking the same thing. Jews on the run. He told there is no excuse nope. for where Stop Quatch that. Wall nope. cries. Nope. 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 You're not gonna, okay. <laughs> nope. You're not going to do that. <laughs> anyway, he is told there's no excuse for Wehrmacht's war crimes against Russians and of the German state against its own citizens. Ernst and Elizabeth find lodgings for the rest of his leave, which is like a day. It's 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 good. I'm glad they found a place for like a couple hours, twelve hours. <laughs> yeah. Returning to the front, he finds a fellow soldier who is an ardent Nazi about to shoot captured civilians. As the two are alone, he kills the other soldier and tells the civilians to flee. One of them picks up the dead man's rifle and shoots Ernst dead. He had not finished reading a letter from Elizabeth saying that she was expecting their child. The end. Tissue box. That civilian was box. like, gotcha. And he just runs through the hills. Benny Hill. Runs through the hands of Phil's of fucking Germany off with the rifle. I've done it. Why should we give a shit about this movie? Because it's really good it was really good i'm really sad that it didn't do well at the box office because it's probably because it ended so sadly okay, honestly though one of the reasons it didn't do well is because a lot of people were comparing it to all quiet on the western front which was a, a success mm -hmm. and there but it happened like substantially earlier 
than this movie. Also, there's a new All Quiet on the Western Front on Netflix right now. Hmm. If you still have your Netflix subscription and give a shit. Because um, a lot of people are canceling <laughs> are them. Are canceling, yeah. Um, but uh, this movie was strange to me. We've watched a lot of World War II movies. And this is the first one that we've watched from a Germany perspective. That was really That's like love in the Nazi world. I got a kick out of it because I'm sure the Nazis would not love that a man of Spanish and Latin descent was oh, playing a German. 100%. So I was giggling about that. I was like, <laughs> that's about all I have for that movie was Nazi love and <laughs> <laughs> for real though. We got Nazi and that this was his breakout. Then, role. It was a, it was his John Gavin's breakout role, and it really was a, he really was gifted quite an opportunity. Not many actors get a he, script like this to he, start off with, and he carried a lot of it too. Because yes, there's the he's opposite of female love interest, but that doesn't happen until later into the film. He's this looking movie sh- for people for a long time. Shows that natural born talent is a thing. Oh yeah, because he really I have seen as well as natural born beauty. I know. And he was all like armied up and shit. Uh, and he was all buff. Fuck, fuck. He literally was just in a war to then go into a war movie. So he was ready. That might have been kind of triggering. triggering for him. I wonder. He never talked about it. I never found anything talking about how that movie like that psycho kind of affected him more than this movie is what I found. Because it's a little close to home. I think murder and all that stuff is expected. And some people kind of are conditioned to sort of when it's in wartime you can kind of disassociate yeah you can kind of mark that as a different yeah disassociate from it in in a different partition of your brain perhaps but murder at a hotel down the street or someone coming into your house and you know murdering a group of sorority girls before that was all the movies you used to see (laughs) you all the movies you see that shit freaks people out especially too I think a lot of people expect that all that you're on alert all the time in the war and you come home and you hopefully don't have to be as on alert all the time. So then that kind of stuff where you take your guard down and you can finally like rest and relax. That's freaky shit. The thing that got me in this one too was when they were describing the layer cake. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like how to murder peeps. I was like, Ooh, that's dark. Yeah, this movie did get kind of dark, but I don't know. This movie, it was definitely a slept on. I hope that maybe we can get some internet buzz about this movie and have a comeback. Because this movie was very fascinating. It was very good. I was not quite sure what I was going to expect. Also, this... What were you expecting? I mean, just like another fucking war movie. Okay, also, I was just giggling about talking about episode four concentration camp air hot because <laughs> there was i actually there just was rewatched that the other day because that movie's so funny both of them oh my gosh um oh shit so i did have a fun fact i guess about this movie this film was banned in israel and so and the soviet union because of its uncommon compassionate portrayal of germans during world war ii yeah like I don't know why this movie wasn't spicier in the headlines. This is is some controversial shit, especially so close to the end of the war. Like he was only like 10 years or 15 years or something. That's not very long. 
Yeah, it's saying this is one of the few American films which portray World War II and the main characters were the in, enemy like shown a in a human light. light. Yeah. A human light is it kind of what it says. And that this is the movie novelist Eric Maria Mark, remarks only on screen performance. The film was entirely shot in West Germany with cool. a cast of Germans and Americans. Interesting. And only a few German German speaking actors were dubbed in the English version. Oh, Majority okay. of non American cast actually spoke English in the film. Yeah, I think a German sympathy film that came out in nineteen fifty eight. Yeah. That's uh that's real, real soon after the war. It was like But I think that would be like putting... I think it's important though. I mean I think that's why it didn't do well, but I think it's important to showcase that the other side are human too. Uh, maybe if something similar would have happened with 9-11, we wouldn't have as much like hate towards Middle Eastern people in this well, country. Maybe those movies would also not have done well. I literally have a friend who is British, but because his skin, he looks Middle Eastern and his family is Middle Eastern. And his last name is Hussein, which is unfortunate. I'm going to say that got um, popularized in the other He direction. literally said that he has no desire to come visit me in this country because he thinks that he would get like beat to death. Harassed, yeah. Well, beat to death and harassed her. Yeah. So, I mean, you know who's yeah. beat to death? A lot of people in the next movie. <laughs> <laughs> you like that? That was a kick-ass segue. I'm pretty proud of good myself. One. That was really good. <laughs> Speaking of beating people to death, <laughs> let's get into the next one. <laughs> that was pretty fucking seamless, if I say so. No, myself. that was really that was great. great. <laughs> Granted, we've been talking about it, so the seam is gone. But you know, <laughs> that was that was a great segue. Spartacus. 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 Is that your good ASMR? ASMR Spartacus. 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 String you up on a cross. <laughs> Get ready for some really ASMR of the movie. That would be a fucking awful movie for Spartacus. You'd hear it. Like, there's nothing quiet. There's a lot of sword clashing so and screaming. Loud. And yeah, they wouldn't picture it. Well, you gotta give us your best Lawrence Olivier. Oh no, that's not what's coming, girl. Spartacus. 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 Get ready. <laughs> <laughs> in the first century BC, the Roman Republic has slid into corruption. Bum, bum, bum. It's menial work done by armies of slaves. Which what? that's the, the working Roman, <laughs> Roman politics corrupt back in the day. What? No way. Shit. <laughs> One of these, a proud, gifted Thracian named Spartacus. Spartacus. Played by Kirk Douglas. Yeah, boy. He's uncooperative, and <laughs> he's, I mean, he is. He's very. He doesn't give a shit. He's very. He's always fighting the system, for sure. I like that. He is so uncooperative in his position at the mining pit that he is sentenced to death by starvation. By okay. chance, he is displayed to Roman businessmen. See, you had the easy one with the German names. Now I get the hard one with these. Old school Italian Shitty names. Fucking Greek names and Italian names. 
Italians. Batitis. The Italians. Batitis sounds like something you get on your foot. You got to call your ex-girlfriend and tell her you got batitis. Or you go to the batitist. Batitist. Whatever. Batitis. He is impressed by Spartacus's ferocity and purchases him for his gladiatorial school, where he instructs the trainer, Marcellus, not to overdo his indoctrination because he thinks, quote, he has quality, end quote. Amid the abuse, Spartacus forms a quiet relationship with a serving woman named Veronique. Just kidding. I was like, that is not her name, but man, I wish it was. <laughs> Bariana, played by Gene Simmons. Not the kiss Gene Simmons. <laughs> I know when you say it, I read it a bunch, and I was like, okay, okay. When, when you, you say it, it out loud, I'm like, oh, that's a different movie. Different movie. <laughs> uh, Kirk Douglas, Gene, Gene Simmons, Simmons, in Spartacus. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Gene Simmons is, is from, he's from Israel. Yeah, he is a real Jew. Yeah. He'd be great. Oh my gosh. This he's is got the long downward hair. spiral. Uh, so he refuses to rape the woman because she's been sent to, quote, entertain him in his cell. I am not an animal. That was so great. That made me laugh so much. He's not an animal. She's like, me neither. <laughs> like, damn, you got yourself a black woman. <laughs> Spartacus and Bariana are subsequently forced to endure numerous humi- numerous humiliations for defying the conditions of servitude. Considering that all of the bunks have like windows, barred windows looking down into them. They're like sleeping quarters. Yeah. Right. Very various humiliations Batias receives I'm pretty sure that's how you say it (laughs) Batias receives a visit from the immensely wealthy Roman Senator Marcus Carassus played by Lawrence 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 Olivier (laughs) our second week with Lawrence Olivier oh yeah bring it back Carassus aims to become dictator of the stagnant republic. And he buys Bariana on a whim. And for the amusement of his companions, arranges for Spartacus and three others to fight to the death. When Spartacus is disarmed, his opponent, a Ethiopian man named Darba, spares his life in a burst of defiance and attacks the Roman audience, but is killed by an arena guard and Carassus. Next day, with the ludus atmosphere still tense over this episode, Batias takes Variana away to Carassus's house in Rome. Spartacus kills Marcellus, who was taunting him over his affections, and their fight escalates into a full-blown riot. That was a fight that was ready to happen. He teased him from the day of. No, for sure. The gladiators overwhelm their guards and escape into an Italian countryside to go eat pasta. (laughs) Spartacus is elected chief of the fugitives and decides to lead them out of Italy and back to their homes. They plunder the Roman countryside estates as they go, collecting enough money to buy a sea transport from... Dealing from the rich and giving to the poor. They're like old Robin school Hood. Robin Hood. What's a Italian Robin Hood? 
Robino. <laughs> I like Is it. I like it. I like it. Robino Hood. Countless other slaves join the group, making it a huge-ass army. One of the new arrivals is Variana, who escaped being delivered to Carassus. Another slave is an entertainer named Antinasty. (laughs) Sorry. It's Antonitis. Antinasty, if you're nasty. (laughs) Antonitis. That's what I was trying to gear up for. Or Antonasty, if you're feeling dirty, master. Played by Tony Curtis. And he talks like this the whole time. He's like, hey, master, how's the bath? It's Antonasty if you're feeling dirty, master. I'm Antonitis. Let me sing you this song. And then he speaks the whole thing. Yeah. I was, <laughs> okay. That, well, yeah. I, I have a question about that. Um, so he also fled Carassus's service after. He walked out. He was, he was like, like, look at a room. Look at it. Look at it. After we have this huge homoerotic scene. Dude, and then yeah. he was like, no. I'm out. Nope. I'm done with this. Yeah. No, it's insinuated that he was being built up to be a sex slave, which, I mean, Tony Curtis in 1960. Not my beehole. <laughs> so, unfortunately, in his own private quarters, Spartacus feels mentally inadequate because of his lack of education during his early years of solitude. However, he proves an excellent leader and organizes his diverse followers into a tough and self-sufficient community. Variana, who is now his informal wife, what we would call common law, becomes pregnant, and he also comes to regard the spirited Antonidas as sort of a son. The Roman Senate becomes increasingly alarmed as Spartacus defeats multiple armies sent to thwart him. Carassus's populist opponent, Gracchus, knowing that his rival would try to use the crisis as justification for seizing control of the Roman army. To try to prevent this, Gracchus channels as much military power as possible into the hand of his protege, a young senator named Julius Caesar, played by John Gavin. Hey, boo. Hey, Julius Caesar. We understand Julius. why Cleopatra was all mm. over that. Let's see you more togas, boy. Sheesh. Mm-hmm. is They should have had John Gavin play Julius Caesar in Cleopatra. Yeah, 100%. He would have been Reprised so hot with Elizabeth, Elizabeth Taylor. Taylor. Are you fucking kidding Dude, me? Dude, so hot. Anyway. Opportunity missed. Carassus uses a bribe to make the pirates abandon Spartacus and has the Roman army secretly force the rebels away from the coastline towards Rome. Amid the panic that Spartacus means to sack the city, the Senate gives Carassus absolute power. Now, surrounded by Roman legions, Spartacus persuades his men to die fighting. Just by rebelling and proving themselves human, he says that they have struck a blow against slavery. In the ensuing battle... After initially breaking the ranks of Carassus's legions, the slave army ends up trapped between Carassus and two other forces advancing from behind. And most of them are massacred. It's a big-ass fight at the end. Afterwards, the Romans try to locate the rebel leader for special punishment by offering a pardon. It's not really a pardon. They want him to return to slavery. If his men will identify Spartacus, living or dead. Every surviving man responds by shouting, Are you ready? Are you ready? I'm Spartacus! I'm Spartacus! I'm Spartacus! I'm Spartacus! I'm Spartacus! They all say. And he says, Y'all are gonna die. That's what y'all are doing. By crucifixate 
crucifixion. <laughs> by crucifixion, no less. Meanwhile, Carassus has found Variana and Spartacus's newborn son and has taken them prisoner. He is disturbed by the idea that Spartacus can command more love and loyalty than he can and hopes to compensate by making Variana as devoted to him as she was to her former husband. Good luck. Right? Kidnapping is always a great start to a relationship. Oh, yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. When she rejects him, he furiously seeks out Spartacus, whom he recognizes from having battled at the gladiator school. Only later, though. He walked right by him. I know. He forces him to fight Antonidas to the death, which is sad. We like them. Both of them. The survivor. They were good buddies. They were a good duo. Right. The survivor is to be crucified. So everyone's going to die. We're just, someone gets a quick death and someone doesn't. So this person will die along with the other men captured in the great battle. And Spartacus decides to kill Antonidas to spare him the terrible fate of crucifixion. The incident leaves Carassus worried about Spartacus's potential to live in as legend and a martyr. In other matters, he's also worried about Caesar, who he senses will Sunday eclipse him, which is exactly what fucking happens. Mm-hmm. Gracchus, having seen Rome fall into tyranny, commits suicide. He bribes his friend Batias to rescue Spartacus's family from Carassus and carry them to freedom. On the way out of Rome, the group passes under Spartacus's cross. Variana is able to comfort him in his dying moments by showing him his baby son, who will grow up free and knowing who his father was. Sad, triumphant ending music. There's a lot of orchestral music in this. Oh, yeah. This movie is loud. There was a lot a of symbols. Overture. There was like an opening overture. There was a, you know, a midground. Yeah. It was a whole event. Why should we give a shit about fucking Spartacus? Three hours of sweaty men and loincloths again. We like our sweaty men and loincloths. Case and in point. That's why. And yeah. we don't need to talk about it. No one. Okay. <laughs> I have Stanley Kubrick, epic movie, epic cast, epically long. One of my things is Saul Bass did the opening credits for Spartacus. Oh, did he? Yeah. I I noticed that and I was like, wow, because Saul Bass did a lot for, which is interesting because there's a lot of segues in this, like a lot of tie-ins rather, a lot of tie-ins in this episode because Saul Bass frequently does the opening title credits for Hitchcock. Correct. So it was really interesting to see these very iconic, kind of very iconic, and I know the, the music from this from this movie like i've heard it more than i've seen the movie i think oddly enough but uh also charles lawton coming in as gracchus oh, yeah charles lawton. there's a this cast is known for playing insane. history's fattest noblemen and politicians is what i wrote down <laughs> yeah he does have henry a type. the eighth yep gracchus so this whole movie was basically made because kirk douglas was annoyed that he didn't get cast in Ben-Hur. In Ben-Hur? Mm. I would say that this almost became a bigger epic than Ben-Hur. Would you say so? I feel like this is a more exciting movie than Ben-Hur. Or maybe it's more memorable? <laughs> maybe. I remember a hell of a lot more of this movie than I do of Ben-Hur. And it's more quotable to go, I am Spartacus, I am Spartacus, yeah, than sure. to be like, I'm Ben-Hur. Ben- <laughs> <laughs> to throw back to season one. <laughs> Because we're talking about the 1958, wasn't it? Yeah, 50 something or other. But not Charlton the- Heston yes. is the one that won out over Kirk Douglas. And Kirk Douglas was like, damn you, 
Charlton Heston. Damn you! Darn I'm gonna do my Charlton own Heston. epic. Stanley and Kubrick, he... what are you doing this weekend? <laughs> that was definitely more than a fucking weekend. <laughs> this was an epic. This well, that's why Rob was like, it's so long, and I was like, it's one of those epics. Like yeah. it's like Cleopatra, yes. which we mentioned, which came out in '63, and Rex mm-hmm. Harrison played Julius Caesar in that mm-hmm. one. Um, it's a hard. Rex Harrison is a pretty great actor. He's pretty, pretty good. good. Julius Caesar, yeah, 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 yeah. you know what I'm saying? Um, but it's one of those epics where they're telling these lengthy fucking Greek and Roman and stories, and so these movies are like three hours. I think Cleopatra's like four hours. I felt like it was three hours just to get through the description, and I tried to cut some out. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so fun story. Was, okay, okay, I had a question for you. Okay, I like your question. What's your question? <laughs> yeah, I don't know what your question is. Do you think is. people were more poignant, like much more poignant back then when they weren't sure or didn't know things, i.e. where he was like, I want to know where the sun goes at night, or I want to know this thing. He, his questions to not knowing those answers were much more poetic than You're right. the answer to a lot of those questions. So in not knowing, uh, are you to, saying that ignorance is poetry? Mm, would you? That's my question. I guess. Would you agree or disagree or? Mm, I'm not hundred percent. <laughs> I don't think every ignorance. Br- I was like, breeds I don't poetry. I was like, sometimes ignorance, out of ignorance comes brilliance. But I feel like that's a drop in the bucket. I think majority of us, it, ignorance is shit. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure, <laughs> not bliss. Um, but I just thought that was interesting. His right. questions to her. What a philosophical question. Right? She was like, you know, I've read a lot of books, but you keep saying some, some really interesting things, Spartacus. I'm going to have your baby. Spartacus. Spartacus, I'm going to have your baby. <laughs> <laughs> he really know where he come from. He really know who his father was. I, Gene Simmons of Kiss. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have Spartacus's baby. And we will party all night long. <laughs> Spartacus, me and your child, we will, we will party all night long. <laughs> we will. <laughs> oh, fuck me. This this movie, it's been a hot minute since I've seen this movie. This was played on TCM when I was a kid, like, a lot. Trying to kill Gene Simmons of Kiss. <laughs> Once a slave woman <laughs> of Britannia. Now a rock god. <laughs> now, then the wife of Spartacus, <laughs> freer of the slaves. Now rock god, rock Jewish god, <laughs> performing nightly. Um. So you remember how epic that last battle scene was? It was yeah. real cool, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know how those people died? That was super awesome, right? Wait a minute. Wait you a minute. saw like Chris Farley. <laughs> Hey, hey, you know, at the at the end there where all those people were like fighting and some people died. That was pretty great, right? It was pretty great. <laughs> so they 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 got like 8,000 pe- trained so- soldiers from Spanish infantry. Okay. Cuz they filmed this outside Madrid. Okay. And they were used uh, to double the Roman army and um they had a lot more fight scenes that we that we did not see in I the movie. I believe that. There was and a lot of production. They cut a lot out. They cut a lot out. It was basically a fraction of the scenes that because basically when they test screened it, people didn't like all the violence in it. 
even though there's Dude, a there lot of violence there was a very blurred forward seat. I know you know the one I'm talking about where there's like a fucking sword that goes through that guy's fucking neck. Yeah, like, for ah! sure. And it's I was great. like, whoa! <laughs> We're starting hot. <laughs> Especially too, because like back then, it was just like, we have bigger TVs now. And I was just like, oh my God, that's in front of my face. And that super red blood from the 60s, because it was yeah. almost orange. It yeah. was like super vibrant on that Very, almost HD Italian TV. cinema kind yeah. of. Oh, for sure, for mm-hmm. sure. It didn't look as campy in the 60s. Yeah, I'm sure it still was scary as shit. That makes sense. That's a lot of that. I wonder. I mean, there was a lot of scenes. Like, it was a long movie, and you and I were talking about how they could have easily cut an out hour. an hour. An hour. If this movie could have sat. All at, I like, saw when they were like two this hours is the comfortably. This is the plight of all these slaves going through the desert. I was like, all I'm seeing is a bunch of tired and hot actors (laughs) that are having to reenact being a slave. Is what I'm seeing. (laughs) This is method acting, guys. Because they're just like probably hot as shit. The sweat's real. Well, again, this is directed by Stanley Kubrick. So we should recognize that he's starting his patterns of abuse pretty early on. He doesn't really give a shit about that. A movie about slaves? You got it. I get to abuse thousands of thousands people. Thousands of people. For the sake of art. <laughs> really, you he just it. wanted to abuse one. Shelley Kurt. Duvall. <laughs> this was all going to Shelley Duvall. Spartacus. It's all leading all, up. All roads lead to Shelley Duvall, including Spartacus. <laughs> I'm Shelley Duvall. No, I'm Shelley Duvall. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, fun fact. Yeah. Both this, the last movie... And this movie, Spartacus, have a leading man who spread their seed and leave heirs behind after taking a difficult, that's in brackets, wife. Because difficult, I mean, when I say difficult, I mean, it was a difficult. Elizabeth was emotional because her fucking city and family was getting bombed around her. Yeah. I can see. I mean, And then he was like real rushing. He's like, let's get married. She's like, let's go on a date. (laughs) I've known you for hours. But it was a difficult romance. It was a difficult. A difficult courtship, let's say, as opposed he to a difficult really woman. He spread a bunch of seeds. Well, he spread had one, like seed. one seed. You know how it works, Aaron. They spread a bunch of seeds and only one survives. <laughs> only one makes it to the egg. We watched Look Who's Talking. We know how it works. <laughs> oh, my God. A Look Who's Talking opening scene. Of like it's <laughs> Smart <again>. guess. <laughs> And all the little, instead of like the little like wiggly tail whip signs, it'll be little swords clashing sound. <laughs> um, that'd be fucking funny. Regardless, there's two movies where you have these leading men who like finally get together with a woman, make it with her, immediately get her pregnant. They are very fertile women that they find and then they die. And then these women are left with children of great men they have to raise. I know. I don't know. It's like Harry Potter vibe. The village will show up. You're Harry Potter. You know what I mean? Like if you, if Harry Potter, if Harry Potter would have been raised where he should have been raised, there would have been a village protecting him. It was my point. Yeah. Okay. Takes a village. They didn't ship those kids off to the Dursleys. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) We talked about it while we were going through the description. He's a singer, but. My my master, I'm a singer of song. I'm an entertainer. I um, entertain the kids. I sing the to, I sing the songs to the songs to my last master's kids. And then he just spoke the whole time. Yeah, singer of songs is a speaker of songs. Didn't or a speaker of poems? Tony is Cruz? he a poet? 
He's not a singer. He didn't have an instrument. It's very He confused. makes music, but he makes words. And for those of you listening who don't know who Tony Curtis is, aside from Hot Lady Crush, he's Jamie Lee Curtis's father. Fada. Um, actually, this is like an ode to Jamie Lee today because... We have both of her parents in movies today. We do. It was unintentional. It wasn't. John was, Gavin is the tie between yeah, your between your I parents, know. girl. But I love that we got Tony Curtis. I love that we got Janet Lee today. God love Janet. Okay, before we move on to the next one, I we have to talk about Tony Curtis being cast in this film. You have Lawrence Olivier. You have Charles Lawton. You have John Gavin, who carries a very good carries very good and strong diction for the reading that he's doing. He's very proper and polite. For this being his, like, another really early movie for him. He doesn't have a lot of experience. This, again, is a really beautiful opportunity that was presented for John Gavin. For him to be in a really notable film with notable actors, with notable careers, and learn from them. And and being basically, like, a green novice. Like, again... John Gavin just had talent. He was born he with talent, it. But that's what I mean. And then you get Tony Curtis, who is obviously Only. A, a draw, but you have you have Laurence Olivier talking about the models of eating mollusks and snails. And then you have him going, Do you believe that, that it's model or immoral? And he was like, Yeah, that, Master, I guess if you think so. Like it's just that kind of conversation. It was just so it I was, was cackling. It, it was the conversation so was funny. weird. But then it was also weird. the dichotomy between their acting styles and oh, yeah. and where they come from like it's really it's off-putting it's a similar vibe when you bathe know, me and tinnitus yes Ke- master if you wish it so it's like keanu reeves trying oh to do a british accent God. you know what i mean he is the keanu reeves of spartacus yes yeah yeah that's master here's the bath it's like if you took Frosty the Snowman. You take Frosty the Snowman, he thaws out, and then he becomes Antonidas. Oh, my Singer Antonidas. Of songs. Oh, jeez, fuck. <laughs> Slow speaker of songs. It was just like watching. It was, I was trying to give an example, and that was the, the clip that came up. And it was just, it wasn't awkward, but it makes sense that he's being bred to be a sex slave. But like everybody that. Ca- Kratos wants to like Kratos, Kratos, Kratos. I thought it was Karasis. Karasis. There's a right. lot of S's. Karasis. That's right. Karasis. Karasis. <laughs> crisis. <laughs> well, he wasn't a crisis because all his slaves kept running out on him. He bought that woman. She never made it there. She never. She he, never he made it there. Lost a bunch of money. <laughs> and even when he got her back, she was like, "No." There's no refund policies on <laughs> slaves. <laughs> Yeah, if you lose them, it's like once you drive the car off the lot, it's yours. Yeah, all depreciates the, all in value. Damage, yeah, all the damage yeah. done is yours now, my friend. <laughs> Same thing with slaves, I assume. <laughs> but it was just that, and him be like, yes, master, let me bathe you. And you're like, this is weird. He's like really into it, too. There's like no like hesitation. He's like scrubbing his back. Yeah, no, like, I, was hey, like, dude, as an act- I was like, as an actor, he's really like, he's doing it. And that's good. There's no like, I'm not, dude, I'm not going to fucking bathe you. Are you fucking kidding me? Like they're doing the actor thing. But still, he sounds like he's fresh off the boat. <laughs> like, where the hell is Island? <laughs> For reference, Tony. <laughs> oh my God, sorry, it's too much. 
he was born in New York City. Yeah, no, I know. New York, New York. Yeah. With my master crisis. Were you confused? No, I was just wondering if maybe he was in Chicago for a second or something. No. Because he's got a little, it's a little. They're similar. Wow, sorry. There's just a whole list of wives. (laughs) 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 My eyes popped open because I was like, damn. He and Elizabeth Taylor were really prolific in marriages. Because they were both gorgeous people, but maybe very tumultuous, complicated beings as well. Actors are insane. You don't have to tell me that. You know me. <laughs> My dad specifically told me not to date actors, especially when I went to art school and he found out there was a theater department in the basement. Not like in the basement, like, but that's just where they kept the actors. I get that. Mm-hmm. I get that. It was wise because it was loud down there. <laughs> are, are you ready to... Yes, master. I'm ready. <laughs> I'm really... Tony Curtis had his moment. I we jest and joke, but Tony Tony Curtis was genuinely a wonderful actor who had a lot of moments that were really great for his career. Sidebar, and hot as fuck. Oh man, he was my biggest like golden age like crush. But then when he got old, he just looked like uh like an old Texas grandpa. Yeah, because wasn't he on Dallas? Yes. Yeah, it was like he that's really the, leaned literally into it the goes cowboy from thing. This to Dallas, yeah. that's like how he goes in my image. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he really no, did lean too. into the cowboy yeah. thing. sorry okay like this is relevant okay irrelevant in between so he had like include janet lee was his first wife and then two three four five six marriages not including any partners she's busy this was she was he was janet lee's third marriage Janet Lee also had a good time. But she, but after, so he, third marriage, but then they got divorced in 62 and she married Robert Brandt in 62 and then they stayed together. So after Tony Curtis, she was like four times a charm. I'm keeping you. You can't leave me. <laughs> We're sticking this one out. That was the vibe of a lot of the falling in love. Like speaking of Spartacus, where she's like, forbid me to fall in love with anybody else. I was like, that is abusive. <laughs> Really, that is cold. That is manipulative, honey. But back in the day, you never knew you were going to find a man as foine as Spartacus again. Fact, dude, Spartacus was hot as shit. Antonitis was giving off a little Mm. gay vibes, though. Mm -mm. Wasn't he? Oh, yeah. Well, that's why he was the sex slave. (laughs) He didn't didn't get into it too much, though. He... He used, the, you know, he used those fine-ass legs to run his ass, his fine-ass away you know, from there. Who should have had some more sex? The dude in our next movie. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really killing it with the segues today. But if, as we'll find out, I don't know if he could. Even if it was presented to him. I don't know. <laughs> but that is a great segue. <laughs> I'm just saying. Speaking of needing more sex. Psycho. <laughs> Psychos need sex too. Fact, man. Maybe I feel like you know. he. There's certain. I have a deep feeling that certain serial killers might not have acted out if they had an opportunity to get on the internet. The serial killer that this is based on, we're going to talk about. Um, Ooh, yeah. And I do feel like he. Uh, <laughs> I want to know more. He would have. Uh, he would have. Been a lot better on the internet. Sorry, I'm just reading there's just like one of your notes for fucking Spartacus is epically long. 
Det får vi se. Long all caps. Exclamation So fucking long. But really good and worth the watch. It really was great. We try not to watch stupid movies. That's why it's called required viewing. That's why we made it through the three hours. It, it was, was good. a good time. It was good stuff. And there's plenty to keep you moving long. through three hours. I mean, you could take a nap for like a half an hour and not miss anything. They give anything. you bathroom breaks. Yeah, for sure. But you also, too, there's plenty to keep you going through that movie. Are you kidding me? Lots of sweaty men doing things, mm. moving shit. Not wearing a lot of pants. Mm-hmm. And, you know, breaking through the doors of slavery and shit. Making sure there's freedoms for all. Black History Month. <laughs> Hashtag Black History Month. <laughs> Psycho. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, no black people in this movie. This movie would have been a lot different if there were some black people in it. Okay. Just Side saying. Bar. We say this all the time. And it is fucking true. There's reason there was no black people in this movie. Otherwise, there would be a movie. It would be a short film. <laughs> They'd be, like, be like, hey, it'd be raining real hard. There's a house bite up there. Nope. nope. <laughs> and they just fucking cruise off. Okay, my first, it's been a while since I've seen this. It's been a couple years. My first thing was like when she gets there and she finds out that she's like almost to her destination anyway. I would have literally just gotten in the car. That, yeah, that's what you and I were talking about. That he's like, it's about fifteen minutes. So Gone. fifteen minutes of food and lodging, and Done. I don't have to stay here with your spooky ass. Bye. Okay, bye. Your mama sounds real abusive. Had fun with that. Deuces. Bye, Felicia. <laughs> Keep the money. I'm out. Bye, right. Norman. Take it away. We, sh- we should start a new thing instead of buy Felicia. Just buy Norman. <laughs> just buy, boy. You seem like you have some problems. Also, sandwiches for dinner. And milk. I mean, milk was a popular drink back in the day. That's why people put so much alcohol in their milk. That's why milky cocktails are a thing. <laughs> Speaking of gagging, psycho. <laughs> During a Friday afternoon tryst in a tryst. Phoenix hotel, real estate secretary Marion Crane, played by Janet Lee, and her boyfriend Sam Loomis, played by John Damn Gavin, mm. discuss their inability to get married because of Sam's debts, including an ex-wife. Just saying. We'll lick the stamps together, darling. She loves your ass. <laughs> That's all I kept thinking. Marianne returns to work, steals a cash payment of $40,000, which we did the math, by the way. That's like... I did do the math. It's half a million. Yeah, $400,000. A dollar in 1960 money would be $10 $10 today. today. Yes. So $400,000. None of them were shitting themselves as much as I would have been when I figured out how much money. They're like, $40,000, okay. Okay. And you're like, "Mm, $40,000. Thousands entrusted to her for the deposit and sets off to drive to Sam's home in Fairvale, California. Sidebar two, she's been in their in their employ for 10 years. I wouldn't I mean, as an employer, if you trust someone for 10 years, like I wouldn't have right? I wouldn't have picked it. But love is a funny thing. Love makes you do crazy, crazy psychotic things. Marion hurriedly tra- trades her car en route, arousing suspicion from both the car dealer and Cal- a California Highway Patrol officer. He's literally been following her forever. She's he's real super- creepy, which I feel like gives her like reason to get more anxious because he's creeping. Tough. But if she wouldn't have been so sus to begin with, man, Very true. he wouldn't have fucking followed her. She is no chill in this movie, man. 
no, because she's guilty as fuck. Marion stops for the night at the Bates Hotel. At the uh, Marion stops for the night at the Bates Motel, located off the main highway, and hides the stolen money inside a newspaper. Proprietor Norman Bates, played by Anthony Perkins, descends from, <laughs> descends from a large house overlooking the motel, registers Marion under an assumed name, and invites her to dine with him. After Norman returns, this is where, insert, this is where he was, she was like, where do I get food? And he was like, there's a town 15 minutes away. Okay, girl. It wasn't 15 minutes. It was 15 miles. That's right. At 60 miles an hour, you I can know, get there in 15 minutes. I know, but it was minutes. raining. So That's the point true. was that it's going to take a while because she's like inching along. It was you know like, what else is going to take a while? Dying. Dun, dun, dun. Actually, I mean, we'll get there, but she died pretty quick anyway. <laughs> That's what you think. Also, uh, I feel like sometimes... Uh, this movie's so old. There's no spoiler alerts. Like this True. death scene, so famous. Like right. I don't feel like okay, we're spoiling also, anything. Okay. Also, sidebar too. If you were like, there's food. There's food, but I can make you a sandwich and some milk. milk. Okay, I'm still gonna go get food down the way. There's a diner. I know. Yeah, I can get some hot food at least. It's cold outside. Anyway. <clears throat> After Norman returns to his house, Marion overhears Norman arguing with his mother about Marion's presence. Norman returns with a light meal and apologizes for his mother's outburst, which you can hear all the way at the house on the top of the hill. <laughs> That's what she said. She was like, she's got a lot of energy. <laughs> for being an invalid, yeah. That was a great, that was a great line. <laughs> that was my favorite. She's real zesty. She was like, she's got it. Like she was just, that was her that was her polite way of saying, like, you're my- Get up some fucking vocals. I can hear that bitch from the top of the mountain. She's got a lot of energy. <laughs> Norman discusses his hobby as a taxidermist, his mother's illness, and how people have a private trap they want to escape. Marion decides to drive back to Phoenix in the morning and return the stolen money. As Marion showers, a shadowy figure in a dress appears and stabs her to death. Soon afterwards, Norman cleans up the murder scene, putting Marion's body, belongings, and the hidden cash in the car and sinks it in a swamp. Marion's sister, Lila, played by Vera Miles, arrives in Fairvale a week later, tells Sam about the theft, and demands to know her whereabouts. He denies knowing anything about her disappearance. A private investigator named Arbogast, played by Martin Balsam, approaches them, saying he has been hired to retrieve the money. Arbogast stops at the Bates Motel and questions Norman, whose nervous behavior and inconsistent answers arouse his suspicion. Everybody's suspicious. He examines the guest register and discovers from her handwriting that Marion spent a night in the motel. When Arbogast learns that Marion had spoken to Norman's mother, Arbogast asks to speak to her, but Norman refuses it. Arbogast updates Sam and Lila about his search and promises to meet them within an hour at Sam's home. After he enters the Bates' home to search for Norman's mother, the shadowy figure emerges from the bedroom and stabs him to death. Do you want to give me some, uh... Is that what you wanted? Perfect. Sam visits the motel with Lila when they hear nothing from Arbogast, worried about... (laughs) worried something went wrong. He sees a figure in the house who, who he assumes is Norman's mother. Lila and Sam alert the local sheriff who tells them Norman's mother died in a murder-suicide by strychnine poisoning 10 years earlier. The sheriff suggests Arbogast lied to Sam and Lila so he could pursue Marion and the money. 
Convinced that something happened to Arbogast, Lila and Sam drive to the motel. Sam distracts Norman in the office while Lila sneaks into the house. Suspicious, Norman becomes agitated and knocks Sam unconscious. As he goes to the house, Lila hides in the fruit cellar where she discovers the mother's mummified body. She screams, and Norman, wearing women's clothes and a wig, enters the cellar and tries to stab her. (laughs) Sam appears and subdues him. Thanks, John Gavin. At the police station, a psychiatrist explains that Norman... He doesn't have to subdue him that hard. John Gavin is massive compared to Anthony Perkins. That's what I'm saying. He's a He literally snap mm -hmm. his fucking wrist. (laughs) Like, there's a lot more of a struggle. My sister had good taste. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) man. She... She may be dead, but I'm so alive. <laughs> Dude, in my mind, they run off together. Oh, absolutely. At the end, he's like, absolutely. hey, you know what? You got a sister. <laughs> we went through some traumatic shit together. You want to fuck it out. <laughs> you didn't steal any money. You have a conscience. She can take on his debt. That's where this all comes from. Is because She true. wanted to pay off his debt, which right. is sweet. Which is but... sweet, but not the right way to go about it. At the police station, a psychiatrist explains that Norman killed his mother and her lover 10 years earlier out of his jealousy. Unable to bear the guilt, Norman mummified his mother's corpse and began treating it as if she was still alive. He recreated his mother as an alternate personality, as jealous and possessive towards Norman as he felt about his mother. When Norman is attracted to a woman, quote, mother, mother, takes over. He had killed two other missing young women before Marianne and Arbogast. The psychiatrist concludes that Mother has now submerged Norman's personality. Norman sits in a jail cell and hears his mother saying the murders were all his doing. Marion's car is retrieved from the swamp. Zoom out. With after a psycho psychotic look, he gives the Dude, best the end, creepy yeah, look the ever. Slow zoom in on Anthony Perkins' face with that insane smile. And then to pulling the car out and yeah. then the movie just fucking ends. Why should we give a shit? Okay. Okay. Fun fact about that noise. Okay. Cats do not like it. <laughs> they don't. My cats didn't like it. They were really upset. No, our cat was like mm, not. And no. he was like so into cuddling and into like the, everything else in the movie. But anytime that the sound, dog didn't like it either. He did not like it. You know what they don't like? Psycho and surround sound. <laughs> that movie scared the shit yeah, out of my us cats. In the were also though. not pleased with the rain, rain noise. But okay, with the rain, so. Rain. so you didn't know that this was in slightly inspired by a true story? No, I think I knew that because you had told me that. Yes. But I don't know the story. Okay, so Psycho is based on Robert Block's 1959 novel of the same name, loosely, and we're going to say big old fat air quotes around loosely inspired by the convicted Wisconsin pig farmer and murderer, Ed Gein. Mm-hmm. And grave robber and necrophiliac. Ed really liked to do some stuff. <laughs> he had some moments. Honestly, Ed Gein was the inspiration to a lot of horror villains throughout the years. A lot of people used okay. Ed Gein because um, another good example of inspiration from Ed Gein, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and even House of a Thousand Corpses to that matter. Anytime where people are like skinning people and hanging lampshades and stuff, yeah, that was Ed Gein. He had okay. the nipple belt. He had bowls made out of... Um, people's skulls, his like cereal bowls were made out of skull caps. <laughs> That's grim. Um, yeah, he was a yeah, he was an interesting dude. So both Gein, who lived only forty miles from Block, oh fuck me, fuck, 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 I lost it. Stop, 
Stop it. Hammer time, dude. Stop it. Okay. Both Gein, who lived 40 miles from Block, and the story's protagonist, Norman Bates, were solitary murderers in isolated rural locations. Each had deceased, domineering mothers and had a sealed-off room to their mother that was used as a shrine and dressed in women's clothing. Gein was apprehended after killing only twice. So he only killed two people, but he grave robbed a lot. A lot of the stuff, okay. a lot of his stuff came from already dead people. He was really into kicking and kicking it in graveyards. <laughs> so the big scene from this movie is Janet Lee's murder scene. Mm-hmm. That's the one that's what everybody knows this. If you've never seen this movie, you've seen that scene. Well, if you go on the Universal like movie movie lot tour, that's the that's a big one that they go through the hotel. Or the motel, and then you hear all that. That's so funny. So Janet Lee was particularly. There's been a lot of storytelling on yes, yeah, Janet that tea, girl. Janet Lee's um, experience shooting this. Spill the Janet Lee tea. She honestly was more affected by seeing it in the film than actually shooting it. She no longer took showers unless absolutely necessary. She would lock all the doors and windows and leave the bathroom and shower door open. She never realized until she watched the film how vulnerable and defenseless one is in the shower. Which is interesting that she did the shower scene. She was like, okay. (laughs) The shower scene is also a big deal because... And the movie itself, actually, is a prime example of the type of film that appeared in the United States during the 60s after the erosion of the production code. One of these years, we're going to do a season on the production code, Mm -hmm. and we're going to dig into that. It was unprecedented in its depiction of sexuality and violence. And right from the opening scene, when we have a shirtless Sam. Mm. Girl, that was a bonus opening. Mm. I was like, John Gavin, this episode's about you. (laughs) He was also in there a lot longer than we thought. He was. He came back for a while longer, yeah, 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 and he was there at the end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It wasn't two seconds. We didn't like kill him off immediately. Thank God. He was too pretty of, to kill him. Mm, mm, eh, that doesn't always apply. He was. <laughs> he was a man though. Marion in a bra also caused a stir. Um, she's on a bra on the co- like on the poster. Yeah, and her being so naked, there was like a couple of moments where people thought that she was. I mean, she was really naked in the shower, but the the shower scene is really suggestive. And for that, yeah, there's no in 1960. That's not that's not a thing. Mm-mm. And the production code standards of the time, unmarried couples shown in bed would have been taboo. Milf manner. That's all I gotta say. <laughs> we have come a long way. Oh, milf manner. I love this movie. I love Alfred Hitchcock, as we established in season three, director's cut. I do, too. Okay, I was <coughs> trying to look for this fact, and I finally found it. So, director Sir Alfred Hitchcock, because he's got his knighthood, was so pleased with the score written by Bernard Herrmann that he doubled the composer's salary to $34,501, which, as we know, is almost $400,000, thanks to this movie. Hitchcock later said 33% of the effect of Psycho was due to the music. Ironically, he was originally adamant that there should be no music in the shower scene, but he was persuaded by his wife to give it a try. 
the screeching violins and dire strings, which would inspire the music for Jaws in 1975, ended up selling the scene and driving theatrical audiences beyond anything that had ever they had ever experienced. See, we're so desensitized to that because it's like... Animals aren't. <laughs> They're just like, ah, no thank you. We've seen Jaws. We've seen all the slashers from the 80s. This was what gave them that momentum to use sound in an aggressive manner. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, this was the first. It's the OD. But I think it's interesting that, like, Bernard Herman did it anyway. Because yeah. Hitchcock, what Hitchcock says goes, but he did it anyway, showed it to him, and he immediately changed his mind. Hitch isn't stupid. He was stubborn. That's different. While they're not mutually exclusive. That's While true. they go together a lot, <laughs> they are not mutually exclusive. Correct. Yes. Well, damn, John Gavin. You sexy ass motherfucker. Damn, Thank dude. You. I want to watch you. more of your movies. We, we should. <laughs> we don't need to do it for the podcast. Dan, John Gavin, continue. Mm. We should do full, pull a Ida Lupino back in the habit with John Gavin. We just came back for more John Gavin. We because. can't because I'm so pumped about next week's episode. Oh, well, yeah. Weird. What well, actually, next week's <clears throat> episode is one of the next week and the week after are the two people that really inspired. This season. This season. And oh, yeah. This whole series. Um, we're talking about Rita Hayworth. What hey are the girl. movies next week with Rita Hayworth? They are Hey Girl. No, I'm just kidding. I <laughs> 1941. Mean, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Cover Girl is about like Hey Girl. You'll Never Get Rich, 1941. Cover Girl, 1944. And Gilda, 1946. Not Glinda, like I keep saying. <laughs> I Glenda. I intentionally do that. Hey, Glenda. <laughs> hey, hey, Glenda. I'm really fucking excited to talk about that. We've Thanks. been waiting to oh, talk yeah. about this. No, this movie. has been. Yeah, no, we wanted to. No, watch we, if we did not Gilda build this entire year. season around this movie. Yeah, we kind of did. Yeah, a little bit <laughs> yeah. actually. Yeah, everything else was just added seasoning. Correct. Um, so that's it for this week. Don't forget to follow our socials and all things movies. And we're going to have a lot of updates about things going on yes. outside the podcast. So do follow us on our social media accounts. Uh, check us on our own individual accounts at Aaron Malane official. Chloe Riggs makes things. Check out our merch store at the required viewing podcast at required viewing.com. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know. Required viewing podcast.com. And until next time, friends, happy viewing. Happy viewing. Hello. This is Required Viewing. This has been a Required Viewing Network production. Thank you to our producer, Michael Murray, social media manager, Chloe Riggs, and showrunner, Aaron Mullane, as well as an additional thank you to our guest contributors.